You're listening to Beyond the Studio, a podcast for artists. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. We're both independent working artists ourselves. And here on the podcast, we have honest conversations with fellow visual artists about their careers and the real work that happens beyond the studio. You can find us online at our website, beyondthe.studio, or on social media at Beyond the Studio, where we share episode links, visuals, and so much more. If you're an artist and would like to be featured on our social media, or maybe even on the show, you can submit yourself to our listener spotlight and share what you're learning beyond the studio. Just follow the link in our show notes or go to beyondthe.studio slash contact. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about, and click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through I Am are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you love the show and haven't rated, reviewed, or shared the podcast, what are you waiting for? Please take a moment to show us your support. If you've already done this, thank you. It means so much to us, and it's one of the best ways to help us keep going and growing. This episode is brought to you by Annie's Kit Clubs, delivering creativity right to your mailbox. With nearly 100 years of crafting experience, Annie's helps you try a new craft every month. Crochet or knit an afghan, build your fabric stash, or introduce your kids to crafting. In your kit, you'll receive all the special supplies and expert instructions to make something new every month. As artists, it's important to have a creative outlet and hobby outside of your work and practice, and Annie's can help you learn new skills like woodworking, jewelry making, knitting, or crochet. I learned to crochet last year because I needed a hobby. So I made my first blanket, and it was just a repeat of the same pattern, which was fun, but left me wanting more. So when I got my first Annie's kit, I was so excited to get started on the Moroccan Tile Crochet Afghan Club Kit. I chose this kit so I could make a beautiful blanket and learn new patterns and techniques along the way. I get to build crochet skills month by month while stitching beautiful tiles, which is perfect for advanced beginners, which is what I guess I am. Each kit includes all the yarn and patterns to crochet a new section of your afghan, which is complete after the 10th kit. Annie's also has helpful online video tutorials that walk you through every step of the way, which is my favorite way to learn, but also has paper patterns if that's your style. No matter your age, skill level, or crafting interest, Annie's has a kit club for you. Use our promo code BEYONDTHESTUDIO75 for 75% off your first month of your subscription to their kits at annieskitclubs.com. That's annieskitclubs.com. Thanks for listening, and now for the show. Today on Beyond the Studio, we have the enormous privilege of sitting down to speak with Ruby Lerner, who has dedicated her career to advocating for the arts and for individual artists and all of their work beyond the studio. If you are not already familiar with Ruby Lerner and her work, then you are definitely in for a treat with this conversation. And I hope you'll bear with me here as I read just a little bit of your biography, just to give listeners a sense of the amazing career that you've had thus far. Ruby Lerner is the founding executive director of Creative Capital, an innovative arts foundation that adapts venture capital concepts to support individual artists. 
Under her leadership, Creative Capital committed more than $40 million in financial and advisory support to 511 projects representing 642 artists. This commitment helped those artists leverage nearly $100 million in additional support. She stepped down from the organization in June 2016 to pursue consulting work and independent research. Prior to Creative Capital, Ruby Lerner served as the executive director of the Association of Independent Video and Filmmakers, AIVF, and as publisher of the highly regarded Independent Film and Video Monthly. Having worked regionally in both the performing arts and independent media fields, she served as the executive director of Alternate Roots, a coalition of Southeastern performing artists, and Image Film and Video Center, both based in Atlanta. In the late 1970s, she was the audience development director at the Manhattan Theater Club, one of New York's foremost nonprofit theaters. In May 2016, Lerner was awarded honorary doctorate degrees from the Maryland Institute College of Art, where Amanda and I both went to college, and Maine College of Art. And in 2017, Lerner was the inaugural Herberger Institute Senior Policy Advisor at Arizona State University and Innovator in Residence at CalArts. Sounds pretty busy for someone who's supposedly retired. <laughs> Since 2018, she has served as advisor to the Arts Exchange Program of the Open Society Foundation, assisting in the design of a new fellowship program for international artists. In 2020, she received a third honorary degree from Moore College of Art in Philadelphia. She also serves on the advisory board of New Inc. at the New Museum and is on the iBeam board. She is also on the board of directors at the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts. So to say it's an honor to talk with you today, Ruby, would be an understatement. And we also just have to give a little shout out to our friend Heather Bhandari for making the connection. So thank you so much for joining us. I'm so thrilled to be here. And uh, you can call me Dr. 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 Now that I yes. have three honorary doctors. Right. <laughs> <We will. laughs> Please don't. <Noted>. Please don't. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm so excited when Heather told me about you because we are working together on my archive. So all the things that you are reading about and more, we've been trying to catalog. And it's been quite a journey because I was in these leadership roles, particularly doing a lot of the arts crises of the last 40 years. And so I have I wrote a lot and I spoke a lot and I'm going back through things that I honestly don't even remember. I'll find an I'll find something I apparently said somewhere like this speech <laughs> that feels this long and who let somebody come and deliver a 40 minute you know address? I don't know. Um, anyway, I, and there it is and I I I don't remember a word of it. I don't remember doing it. It's so wild. Um, so it's been it's been an, a process of discovery, uh, you know, sort of rediscovering your own history. And, you know, and I think what's been the interesting revelation has been, of course, it's not just my history, it's the history of a period of time. It's, a, it's part of the cultural mm -hmm. history as well. So it's been a revelation. And we're um, in the process of putting together a, a website and we're doing some interviews and, and other kinds of material. Like I'm asking a couple of people to record some of my presentations. So um, I think that's going to be exciting. I have the wonderful 
artist, Christina Wong, who's an L.A. performance artist and comedian. She's going to deliver one of the 1995 essays, which should be just great. Oh, amazing. Um, Yeah. So um, so we're trying to make it playful and have fun with it. But, you know, my hope is if if there's any any lessons in there that are useful to younger leaders, I think that that, you know, if one person benefits from that, then for me, the whole thing is is worthwhile. So but it's an it's an undertaking to go back through 40 years. And, you know, I'll tell you, I've thought about this, and I, I, mean, I, um, I know this is not exactly the, the content of the show on a, on a regular basis, but, but I would say to um, artists and to younger leaders, save everything. If you're on a panel, you know, if you speak on a panel or you have really good presentations that you do, just save them and save them on paper too, in addition to saving them digitally, Mm -hmm. Um, because technology changes and and papers are really reliable technology, something I've learned. And the other thing I would say is a lot of people, I don't have the ability to improvise um, really that well, but, and a lot of people can just do bullet points when they're doing a presentation and they know what that means and they can improvise off of that when they're speaking. I have to write down every sentence. Well, guess what? 40 years down the road, that's really useful because you're probably not going to remember what the heck that bullet point meant in 40 years, trust me. (laughs) So, so if you have the full text, you know, it's just a lot clearer and, and I think make, makes your own archive much more useful, but because everyone exists in a, in a period of time where things happen, everyone is a cultural recorder, artists and arts leaders. And so I think Mm. it's very important to, to document I hadn't I hadn't thought much about it before working on this this you know for myself, but now I I really think everyone should be doing it. Yeah, there was a conversation a few years ago with the artist Lucy Pulse, and she like pulled out her decades of sketchbooks, and she was like, "Oh yeah, this one had the recipe for this material I created in the studio one afternoon, and I ended up using it you know years later, and this one had you know all of the notes for this thing and." I, it inspired me to keep better track of my sketchbooks. And I just in the few years that I've started doing that, I'm seeing how important it is to be able to reference back to my own work and to, yeah, like I forget things that I write in my notebook today where it's like, what did I mean? I think that was the surprise for me was how much I didn't remember, you know? So yes, I think that, I think that's really, I think that is great. And I think it's really good advice to artists from the, right from the beginning of your career, to build that in as part of your your practice. Thank you. We do want to talk about your time at Creative Capital, but before that, I'm interested to know more about your path into arts advocacy and arts administration. And so we were wondering, in thinking back to your early career, going through this process of archiving, if you could tell us what led you into this type of work. In some ways, I didn't have a choice because I was running organizations that were on the front lines of all of the issues that were being faced. So I ran, you know, grassroots cultural organizations for the most part. And I know most people wouldn't think of creative capital as that, but I I kind of still did because that, that's the, the world I came from. I ran membership, artist member organizations. And so those were the ones that were always being attacked, whether it was budget cuts or or censorship issues. And so, you know, there was no choice. You had to respond. You had to step up. And so that's where a lot of the writing and, and speaking 
you know, went. I mean, there, there, again, just it just wasn't an option. So I'm grateful for that in retrospect. But, you know, it, it forces you to do a kind of analysis. It forces you to look at history and to understand that these things are cyclical, that they do come in patterns, which is something, again, I think looking back at my my 40-plus-year career um, that I can really say is that, you know, we we kind of lurch from crisis to crisis in one way. <laughs> you know, we have a crisis and things seem okay for a while. Then guess what? There's another crisis. And, oh, it looks kind of like the crisis we had the last time or the time before that. The big question that I'm asking now that I that I want to try to, you know, do some thinking about with, with friends, younger and, and, and people who are my age too, is we clearly, we were buffeted and continue to be buffeted by all the crises that come our way, which tells me that we don't have an infrastructure in place that allows us to be resilient in the face of these crises, whether it's, you know, the, the cultural the cultural wars are back, you know. I mean, they're back politically. They're back in our realm. Where, what, what is it we don't have in place that is allowing us to be buffeted again by these similar kinds of arguments. I have this essay on culture and power. And, and you know, I've, again, had the amazing privilege to get to work with Heather Bondari. And Heather, of course, has read everything. And she said, you know, one of the things that happened to me when I was reading some of your stuff is I had to keep going back and looking at the date you wrote it because you could have written it yesterday. And that's a little, that's depressing that I could have written it yesterday. So we do see these things happen. Disconcerting. It's disconcerting. Yeah. So, but so, so something's missing. I mean, I do think there's a financial infrastructure that is, is missing, you know, both for individuals and for organizations. That is something I think that we need to work on collectively. But there's also like, what's our toolbox? You know, it's, we should have a toolbox at this point for sort of fighting back. And and it feels like those have to be, that the, those set of tools have to be reinvented again in every era. We shouldn't have to do that at this point because we can, you can kind of predict, you know, what in a way, the kinds of things that are coming. You could, you might have to tweak a little bit, but it's basically the same arguments. Yeah, I wondered if um, this could be a good entry point into talking a bit about how creative capital as an organization got started, because it was as a response to some of these crises you're describing. And for those that might be unfamiliar, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the origins of creative capital and what prompted that uh, organization coming into being. Yes, well, it was very much a product. It was a product of two very interesting things, I would say. It was a product of the culture wars of the mid to late 90s. And it was a product of the really good stock market of the late 90s, the the dot-com boom. Because a lot of the individuals and certainly uh, foundation funders had extra money sitting around. And so they could invest in something that was a new idea, um, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, without having to stop funding other things that they had had long-term relationships with. So they had this extra money. So we were really the beneficiary of, of that moment as well. So both of those things, you know, one is negative and, and one is positive. So, you know, it was, 
for me, having at that point, I had already run three other organizations and I was 50 when we started Creative Capital. And I always like to say that because I think people don't necessarily think that that 50 year olds are going to have innovative ideas. <laughs> and so, um, and so I, what I say is that I couldn't have started that one, one minute earlier. I needed all of the experiences that I had had up to that point to be able to conceive it um, in, in a way that um, I thought was going to make it a wholly unique organization and, and an organization very much in response to its moment. So we were very influenced by philanthropic trends in the late 90s and early 2000s. And the biggest one was venture philanthropy. So this was something that was happening around the country where people who had made money in new economy businesses, tech tech businesses, were interested in, you know, turning some of their resources and their energy toward philanthropic endeavors. But they looked at what they considered the traditional relationship between a funder and and a recipient, which was, you know, here's a check, good luck, send us a report. And they thought, wow, well, we didn't build our successful businesses that way. We had a lot more help. We had money that was parsed out at various uh, benchmarks in, in in the business's life. Maybe there's a different way and maybe a better way to do philanthropy. So, we were interesting to the philanthropic community, the more traditional philanthropic community, because we said, no one is trying out these ideas in the arts. So why don't we be the experiment to see if you could take those concepts, adapt them, because they obviously they need to be adapted, um, and see if they will work in the, the cultural sector, in the arts sector. So that was my job. My job was to take those things. I didn't know doodly squat about venture capital when I was hired, but I had obviously a long history in the nonprofit arts. And so I put a lot of things together. I mean, I consider, well, I consider creative capital my own conceptual art project. And I consider it a kind of postmodern mashup because it was venture capital with, you know, certainly my nonprofit history with looking at other things like agricultural co-ops and the mutual aid societies that immigrant communities build when they get to a new place and, and, and. So I was sort of smushing all of this interesting stuff together and seeing if it would make an organization. And we were lucky. I think it did, but it was radically different. And I don't think, to my knowledge, there's anything yet that is 100% uh, that 100% emulates it. I think people have taken or organizations have taken the pieces of it that make sense for them, which is also, of course, fine. Um, but we had, um, I, I built out a very pretty rigorous system of support. And I'll just briefly go through it. The first was supporting the project. So this was not a fellowship. This was a project grant. We felt that supporting a specific project kind of gave us a, a beginning, middle, and an end but it also, it gave us a way into the person. So we started with the project. So supporting the project with money, with other kinds of support, with a lot of interaction on our part, with mentoring, whatever the, the artists felt they needed in order to make their project succeed in the way they wanted it to succeed, we wanted to make that available. So we started with the project. 
But as one of my staffers used to say, but very rapidly, we went on a journey with a person. And so the next thing we wanted was for people to leave us stronger um, when, when they were done with their project than when they came in. We got ve- This is where we got very interested in professional development activities of all kinds. This is where we got interested in financial literacy, in helping people understand things like marketing better, real estate, negotiating, long-term strategic planning, etc. So we help people build uh, their own personal toolkit so that they would be, you know, really, you know, hopefully stronger when, when they left than when they came in. The third component of the system is building out the, the community. So we wanted artists to see each other as resources. So we wanted the community of funded artists to, to really become a community so that they would have access to each other throughout the rest of their careers. And that was amazingly successful. But we also wanted to create opportunities for our grantees to interact with what I call the opportunity creators in the field. So we did it a, an amazing retreat um, in the years where we had new grantees. And we brought in over 100 curators, programmers, editors, publishers, film producers, book people, uh, other funders. So the idea was that no matter what your discipline was, you might have the opportunity to interact successfully with somebody from a totally different discipline. Because one of the things we found was that a lot of visual artists had other practices. You know, a lot of filmmakers we, we had this wonderful filmmaker, very successful independent filmmaker. He, he told us he was going into his drawing studio every day, right? He, 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 he had a, a visual art practice, a more traditional visual art practice. Um, a lot of people were musicians. We had, you know, people who were high, high, hyphenate artists, I like to call them, hyphenate artists, because they weren't just mm-hmm. one thing. And so by having resource people there who weren't just from the visual arts, but from all, all fields in the arts, they were able to have interactions that they just would never have been able to have in their daily lives. And the concrete opportunities, both that the artists created for each other and that the, that the professionals in the field that we brought in created for the artists are just were off the charts. I mean, I could just fill this screen with, with things that happened as a result. So that was a, a sort of beautiful thing we were able to do. And then the final component is engaging the public. And we're not, we were not a presenter or producer ourselves for the most part, but so bringing people to the retreat was one way we alerted the field to everything that was going on. And then we were very active with blogging and our, you know, social media and all that kind of stuff. So project, person, community, public, that's the system. And it's, um, the idea was that the pieces of the system would, would work together, that it was sequential, but also eminently flexible. It's also important to note that the NEA had stopped giving out individual artist grants. So while Creative Capital was created to fill this financial need, it was also really pioneering, like you're describing, for pulling from the worlds of venture capital and these kind of startup incubator, accelerator programs, which I find so fascinating because it doesn't seem like that was really a part of your personal background. And I'm, I'm just curious about when and how this light bulb moment occurred that this was the model that arts nonprofits should be following. You know what, at a certain point, I, I kind of, I just said, oh my gosh, this is really a success model. That was the thing that I learned from the venture cap, that I took from the venture capital model, uh, was that this is really 
designed to help people succeed. That doesn't mean that everything will be a success, but all the underpinnings that you're creating help create an environment in which people can succeed. And I didn't feel really, if you step back and looked at what we had in the field, the that what I call the, you know, here's a check, send us a report model, you know, again, it doesn't necessarily do that. You know, yes, people are successful mm-hmm. all the time, but um, but it, it doesn't necessarily create the, the infrastructure that gives somebody a better shot at it. Yeah, you've said that word a number of times, creating an infrastructure or this foundation to help artists succeed. And I wondered if um, you could expand on the importance of that kind of support in addition to the financial support um, and that emphasis on professional development being really crucial. Yeah, so I... I had been, from the time I really worked at the, at the Manhattan Theater Club in the late 70s, I was their first audience development director. And so, you know, we became a successful theater. I think the time, during the four years or so that I was there, I think we tripled the audience. But I had a lot of mentor, I had a lot of mentoring that really, you know, helped with that. And, and we were very rigorous in our analysis as well. Um, and that's something I've been so excited to hear on your, um, on your podcast with people how you're keeping spreadsheets. I still can't do a spreadsheet, but you know, how you're keeping oh, spreadsheets great. and, you know, and, and you really understand the, the business, um, the business aspect of, of what you're doing and you're doing rigorous analysis. So that's what we did. And I very early, pretty early on in my career, I became somebody who was providing this kind of assistance to other theaters in New York. I started working with the Alliance of Off-Broadway Theaters um, and doing workshops, which I continued through my early days at Creative Capital that I just didn't have time to keep doing it. So I was working with small off-Broadway theaters um, there. And I realized when we started Creative Capital that we just didn't, there, there was no uh, there was such a limited access for artists to get that kind of support and training. I mean, who was talking to artists about strategic planning, you know, long-term personal and, and, and work planning? I mean, I, I don't know who was doing that. I don't, I don't think very many people were doing it. And we lucked into an amazing person who was just so incredibly helpful to um, so many of our artists and then many others. I will just say one of the things that happened that was so lovely, because we felt we were trying to encourage artists to think entrepreneurially that we needed to do it ourselves. And when we saw the success of, of the professional development work we were doing with our own grantees, uh, I came into the office one day and said, I, I don't think this should just be privatized to the small group of people that we can do, that we, we can support with, with grants. Couldn't we make this more widely available? Because our own artists were sharing the information with their buddies, with their students, with their colleagues. And so we created a professional development program. And I, I heard on one of your podcasts re- you, that you referenced Artist U. Um, and, um, mm-hmm. and Artist U was a direct outgrowth of the professional development workshops that we did at Creative Capital. So it had a huge you know, yes. impact um, in, in just many ways. And many um, of the communities that we worked in started their own local programs. Many of them hooked up with like local business schools at the colleges and universities in the area. Um, and so we really almost became like a movement. It was really beautiful to see, to see it expand. But I can tell you during the years I was there, I think we reached an additional something beyond our own grantees, 15 or 16,000 artists with both in-person and, and online workshops. So 
That's amazing. That was a great thing to be able to do. And so many people, um, you know, when I travel, uh, you know, will come up to me and say, I took one of the workshops and, um, and it really changed my life. I mean, you know, what's better than that? Yeah. yeah. Who, who knew that we had some unknown roots connected to you all along? <laughs> some DNA there. Some DNA. Yeah. 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 Because um, uh, Andrew uh, Simonette um, was um, at, had long dance and they were a creative capital grantee. And he got very excited and, you know, felt there was a sort of a local version um, of the workshop that could be done and expanded on. And so he put that together. And his colleague, Amy Smith, who's also a wonderful dancer and choreographer, she was informally doing taxes for all of her friends in Philadelphia. Mm. And I said, oh, my God, if we had the money, I'd send you to accountant school because it would be so great to have an actual artist, you know as an accountant that we could send people to. So yeah, and we've had Andrew Simonet on the podcast before because Amanda and I have both uh, gone through the Artist U program at separate times. So we really do owe you this debt of gratitude for all of the work Creative Capital did to create that foundation because I don't think Beyond the Studio would exist without it. And it really has created these ripple effects. But at the same time, it's it's interesting because I think that there still exists this gap in professional development for so many artists. And so I'm curious where, because Creative Capital has done such a wonderful job of making these resources available and training not only the grantees, but uh, putting on webinars and just so many things that help to to close that knowledge gap for artists. And I'm, I'm curious what... What other places do you think artists can or should be getting this type of professional development from, whether through arts education or are there other other places, I guess, that you think or can be filling this need? I think this is a mixed bag at, at the schools, professional practice. So I think mm-hmm. that, it, you know, it's so great that, you know, the that creative study, I think, it exists now, Heather and, and Dexter's mm-hmm. program, I think, which is really feeling a need. I don't think people should be allowed out of art school without, you know, having had an opportunity to acquire these skills. I just don't. Because, you know, and, and it's a problem in a lot of places. In our early days... Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, people said, well, we're, we're not going to offer that. That's vocational training. Mm. I was like, wow, do you want your people to be successful or or not? Because the mythology is, oh, you're just going to keep painting and one day somebody's going to discover you. I mean, right. <laughs> hello, you know. Okay, I'm not going to say that's never happened because it has happened. But to base your very, very expensive art school education on that happening just doesn't seem, that seems really unethical to me. So there are definitely ways to help people figure out, as I, as I said in the work I'm doing now, is how can you be in control, you know, of your, you know, of your own career to the extent that that's possible. Yeah, I recently had a conversation with a friend who started teaching at an art school, and I won't name any names, but they were like, I cannot believe that it has been a decade and they still are having the same problems that they had when I was in art school. Like they're not giving students the like professional tools and resources that they need. And they're very much kind of funneling them in one professional direction of like, you're going to galleries, you do fine art. That's it. That's the only thing you get to learn here. That's the only, the only thing you'll need to know when like artist careers look 
in a million different ways, or, or well, as many different artists as there are, there are that many different artists' careers. And the fact that like we're not given the most basic tools to manage our finances, to budget for projects, to write grant applications, to write our own copy and emails to market ourselves. It's like abysmal and offensive. No, it, it, it shouldn't really, honestly, no one should go to those schools. If I were a parent sending, you know, and I was going to be spending the one spending the money, I would want to, that's the first question I would ask is what, what what's your, you know, it's not that art school is so, so bad, even though it's so expensive. It's just like, how are you helping people with uh, develop professional skills so that they can thrive once they're out of here? I want to say, Amanda, as I was listening to you and some of the earlier podcasts, and you were talking about the video work that you're you're doing now, which is so exciting. Um, oh yeah! It made me, you know, think about a conversation. This is part of the strategic planning work that 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 our planner did with artists. This was also one of the things that was transformative, was that artists have a lot of skills, and they have a lot of skills that are really useful in other sectors, and so you know there is a way often for artists to actually make better money doing something that they they have the skill set for right and i'll tell you an, an example we had a wonderful artist who was an installation artist and he was running all over new york he was teaching in three different schools adjunct so he was making no money getting no benefits and at the end of the day he was just too tired to do any work and so something really needed to happen and when he worked with our planner and she said well let's talk about your assets let's talk about what you can do it turned out that he he had you know he had he was working in installation but he had this background in film so he had all these film skills he could shoot he could edit he could do all that stuff and she said well you know did it ever occur to you that you might be able to get a job at an agency of some kind and part-time right and she said they're all going to love you because because they won't be threatened by you because you're not trying to take anybody's job (laughs) so so he ended up getting a job that paid him decently he had real benefits like he worked enough that he could get health benefits and like retirement benefits and guess what? He was only working, I can't remember whether it was three or four days a week, but he had the rest of the week to make work. He became so productive and started getting all these commissions all over the country because he finally had the, the time and energy to focus on his work. But he found something that was able to sustain him really well. And so that is something that I think we also don't talk about enough, is that if you are doing a kind of work that is unlikely, you know, you might break even. And this was something, again, that came up in your earlier podcast, is that a lot of people are, in fact, breaking even, which is that that's a huge accomplishment, but they're not necessarily making a lot of money. So are there things you can do that you can be exceptionally well paid for, not have to do them for too many hours a week to give you the freedom to do your work, you know, to really focus on your work for the rest of the time? And that's not a formula that will work for everyone, but it, it's a formula that might work for uh, for some people. Yeah, and I think that kind of audit of an artist situation is so incredibly valuable because there is such a discomfort around 
how artists are making a living often. And I think there's a tendency to undervalue whether it's our skills or our time. And, and because of all of the external ways that artists tend to be undervalued for their contributions. And so I think that for, for many artists, it is easy to overlook um, those things that could potentially uh, fill fill that need and that there there could be solutions that exist um, in our own lives that I think having that type of clarity and sometimes it is having somebody to offer the, a, a kind perspective and to provide the kind of guidance that, that you and that creative capital did. Um, so it's just enormously valuable for artists, I think, in being able to make those changes. Yeah. And of course, you can do that for yourself. I mean, you can do a, you know, there's, you don't need a, another person necessarily, you can do a self audit and, and, and really look at the skills that you have and, and where else they might be valuable. And that's something I would absolutely recommend. Um, I wanted, can I ask you, because I, I listened to your, uh, a, a good bit of the financial broadcast, which I was, which I was so excited to hear. And I just so, again, so appreciate how honest you both were on the topic. Something that I talk about a lot, and, and I didn't hear this, and maybe I, it, was in a part that I didn't listen to. But I'm really interested in talking to people not just about project budgeting and and the sort of, you know, profit loss statement at the end of the year, the end of the month, end of the year, but in in personal finances. Because this is an area where I also think sometimes people are good at their at the business side of things, at their business budget, but they're they aren't paying the same kind of attention in their personal lives and and this is something that I think is super important. And I, I think the the conversation with Sarah Benning was so interesting where she talked about mm-hmm. upping her prices by 10%, right? I love that because, and that really gave her breathing room, right? That just, it's not, it wasn't a huge amount because I went on her site, her, her stuff's not really that expensive. So, but it meant that extra 10% meant a lot to her. So thinking about, you know, how you, take care of yourself. You know, and I always say, if you're not, you can't do your work in the world if you're not taking care of yourself. And I think that taking care of yourself is more than breaking even or just doing a little bit better than breaking even. You need to think about your later life. You know, I'm going to turn 75 this year. I'm going to turn 75 in just a a couple months. And I will tell you that I didn't start saving money until I got the creative capital job because I never made any money. I ran all these... I ran all these marginal organizations, right? And so they didn't have retirement plans. I wasn't making enough to actually save any money. I remember at one point I was still using my accountant from Atlanta and he said, Ruby, you can't keep taking three deductions at work. And they don't let you do that anymore anyway. But <laughs> you can take three deductions. I said, but Harold, I have to take three deductions just to have enough money to live here. You know, it was it was scary. And it wasn't until Creative Capital that I had the first job that actually paid me decently and that had decent benefits, including a retirement account. So this is something that maybe I, I, I hope you, if you haven't already, we'll get into in um, a future broadcast is how, you know, how to make sure you're taking care of yourself because, you know, you'll get to a point where it's not even that you can't be as productive, but when you get to my age, you might not want to be as productive. You might not want to be in the studio every day. You might want other things in your life. You know, you might have grandkids you want to spend time with. You just don't know. And so you have to prepare for that moment in time. We don't know if we're going to have social security, which, which, 
even if you wait until, you know, the maximum age is not enough to live on. You know, what is your financial picture going to look like in 30 or 40 years? You know, if you if you said, well, I have got other stuff and it cost me whatever, $80,000, I can live really well on $80,000 and I can I can generate 40, you know, even slowed down or we have a rental property or I'm going to teach part time or whatever it is. But, but you need to generate $40,000 a year from your own resources. You need a million dollars a year in investable assets. Take a deep breath. You need a million dollars uh-huh. a year. And and that to generate 40000 because you're not supposed to take. And, and these okay. numbers are even debatable. But you're not supposed to take. It's called the 4% rule. You're not supposed to take more than 4% a year from your holdings. It's kind of like an, a, a university endowment or a foundation endowment, right? Where you're not pulling down from that million dollars. You're only pulling down from the earnings. You know, and, and a lot of people now say even even a lower amount. Like my financial guy says three and a half percent. I mean, so that means you need even more money in, saved. Mm-hmm. So I hate to bring it up, but it's sobering, right? Um, and so this is why you need to start early, right? Everybody needs to start early. Don't do what I did. I had $11,000 in a retirement account at the age of 50. I don't know when exactly I thought I was going to retire, you know? So thank mm-hmm. you, Creative Capital, for giving me a retirement. So it's really important to start thinking about those things right at the beginning of your career. I mean, honestly, even when you're a student. So I did a presentation, which I will um, happily share with you, at a conference at Arizona State called Art School of the Future. And it deals with a lot of these yes. kinds of things. I don't know if you've seen it, um, but it's it's really about the arts. I've read the article version. Yeah, exactly. So I it's where I talk about a lot of these things and how, you know, how missing they are. In fact, when I finished the presentation, I did it as if it were a and this is why I got the invitations to do the graduation speeches, because I did it as if it were a speech on graduation day. <laughs> so, so anyway, and at the end of it, I, I came out of character and and I asked the people in the room if they would be able to make those things happen at their college or universities. And they all said no. I was like, what? Yeah. They said that the faculty, that there would just be too much resistance. I'm like, you're killing me. I mean, you can't. No, it's not okay. So I think that um, there's so much work to be done. And if it's not going to happen in the schools, there need to be places. And this is, again, it's the infrastructure there is a question I have. Where can you go if you just come out of school and you want to get off on the right footing, maybe even before you have your first show or your first job or your first anything? You want to know how to do this right and for the long term and get set up well, right? Let's say you have an early show and the show sells out or it does well. What percentage of your of what you get from that show should you be putting away in long-term savings, you know, mm-hmm. for yourself? But then there are other things. Everybody needs an emergency fund, you know. Obviously, you need to be able to cover your costs, but you also need an emergency fund because what happens if some some months something you were expecting to come in doesn't come in? You still have to pay the rent, you know. So, oh, yes. um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think the these so thinking about personal finances is also, I think, super important it's not just your you know the the work the work but the budgets for the work and figuring out profit and loss on the work that's very very important but it's also like how do you take care of yourself personally yeah i agree we definitely we have not done an episode on personal finances and i think 
when we talk about finances, since we're working for ourselves, so much of our personal finances are tied up with our business finances. But that also, it's like a really easy way to get yourself in trouble because you're like constantly reinvesting in your art practice or your art business. And you're not setting money aside for your future for times where perhaps that you're physically not able to do something. Perhaps you're like in a position where someone else is needing your care or where you you know, like now the world suddenly becomes significantly more expensive and we have to figure out how to adapt. And it's much harder to get the materials we use and it's much harder to get together with each other. And there's so much to consider. I feel very lucky in that my brother is a financial advisor. He's helped me so much to even just understand like how to roll over my old 401k from when I was working a retail job at Apple into a Roth IRA that like yes. I can build professionally it, all on my own. And that's right. Like exactly. how to invest my money in, you know, things that feel like I'm just throwing money into the wind now, but decades down the line will hopefully amount to something that could help. But even just, I don't know, having a diverse financial portfolio for yourself personally, it's so important to be able to help also fund your practice in life as a human and artist. Mm -hmm. You know, it is, and it doesn't have to be, it, it all feels very intimidating, but the a lot of the mutual fund companies have really great tools now, including, you know, uh, target, what are called target date funds, which are, you know, geared toward about the time you might be slowing down. So for you all, it might be 40 years from now, but they have dates, you know, from now up to, you know, 40 or 50 years from now. And you can say, well, this is close to the date that I probably would want to, you know, slow down and just maybe do some other things. And what happens in those funds is brilliant, whoever thought them up, is that they automatically adjust as you get older. So when you're younger, they're they're very invested in things that are, you know, just more volatile. There's a lot more investment in, the, in stocks and a lot less investment in, in bonds, which are you know, sort of tend to be a more conservative investment and a totally different kind of investment. And so when you get old, as you age, they, the percentages change. So if you invest when you're in your 20s, it might be 80% is in stocks and 20% is in, in bonds and maybe other holdings. And by the time you, if you hold on and retire or use that money at a later age, it might be the exact opposite. It might be 20% in and stock, I don't think anybody goes quite that low these days because you need to make money. But let's say it's thirty to forty percent, you know, um, in stocks and the rest and uh, bonds, and the rest is in stocks. So it adjusts with you, and that so it's sort of lock it and leave it. You don't really have to to think about it too much, you know. And and that's a good investment for you know people who are are intimidated, you know. I think, but um, but I'm not qualified to give financial advice, but. <laughs> Um, but there's so much to research online uh, now. I mean, you, you know, the, the mutual funds themselves, like Vanguard, which is actually a nonprofit, um, believe it or not, and um, Fidelity, and in, right there in, in Baltimore, T. Rowe Price. Uh, there, there are many really good um, good funds, and they have a lot of tools. They have a lot of financial tools on, this, on their websites. So there's a lot to explore there. Yeah, and I think I want to say it's with Fidelity. They've like fairly recently started a like Fidelity Go thing that's like a very easy way to invest. And yeah, I learned about Vanguard through my brother and I was like, this yeah. sounds great. Yeah. So I hope I hope maybe you'll include that. I'll send you um, I'll send you the paper, um, you know, that I did the business of you because it's got a very it has a robust financial section. So I'll send that to you. 
Yeah, thank you so much. That'd be terrific. I think all of these resources we can share um, along with all the entire catalog of resources that Creative Capital has provided over the years. And I think what you've really highlighted is the importance of this type of you know, personal finance, financial literacy, along with you know, all of the other education uh, around professional practices as being really foundational to artists being able to sustain a long-term career in the arts, which I think is is the goal for most, if not all of us. And in addition to the community aspect, and I think what's coming up for me is just that really integrated approach that Creative Capital has taken, that it's not just a matter of you know, one, one of these things, just the financial support or just the education or just the community, but you really need all of these things coming together. And so I wondered if we could zoom out a little bit too, because I think um, there's been so much amazing advice for artists on an individual level here already. And I'm also really interested in your perspective as someone who has helped to Uh, lead these arts organizations through all of these different changes over the years. Just kind of thinking about, especially recently, what (laughs) we've gone through, what's been happening in the world through the pandemic and in the years um, after you had stepped down from Creative Capital, I'm sure you have some perspective on what's been, been happening. But I'm, I guess I'm interested to know... Well, maybe that is a starting point. Um, you sort of mentioned the the early on the need for a real infrastructure that's resilient, that can support artists through these different types of crises. And I've certainly had plenty of experience with, with navigating organizations through that yourself. And I wonder if you have any insights either for arts workers, uh, arts leaders working today on, um, you know, the last couple of years and, and things that you've been thinking about. You know, it's a it's a challenging time. It's been, a, you know, it, it feels like it's always challenging. But this has really been challenging. And I am so in awe of people who are, you know, in leadership roles in organizations right now, because you're you're really juggling so much, because we've had a lot of, you know, a lot of cataclysmic and necessary, I think, changes. You know, I think the conversations around race particularly have been so important. We began a process in 2015, before I left, before any of the sort of current, you know, reckoning period, you know, uh, sort of in 2020. So it was incredibly difficult to confront all those issues individually and, and collectively. And it was a journey that was, I have to tell you, I didn't get one night of sleep that whole last year I was there. It was so, you know, unnerving in in all the right ways. It was painful, you know, but, you know, I am so grateful for that experience. And, you know, I, I hope that I am a better and more responsible human being as a result of having gone, gone through all of that. And certainly every enterprise you know, commercial, nonprofit, arts, non-arts needs to have that, needs to go through a process like that. I think what's happening in in some cases, like for instance, in the corporate sector, I have a feeling it's a little more, what's the word, maybe sugar-coated. I don't know, that might not be quite the right word, but, but we did this for an entire year and we needed to do it for an entire year, you know? There's a lot to unravel. So there's that. And then and then we had, you know, a shutdown, which, you know, was 
debilitating for so many organizations, but organizations really, you know, that was a that was a struggle. And particularly, I will say in the performing arts, which has not yet really recovered. Mm -hmm. I mean, that has been that was that's been brutal. That has really been brutal to see. So how are we going to emerge from this? I I think um, we're going to have to, again, some organizations certainly have embraced this already. Um, We're going to have to not just be prepared for hybridity, but we're going to have to learn to love it, whether we really do or not. (laughs) We're going to have to, because it's just a whole, it's going to be a whole other way of being. And we're going to have to prepare for sort of both things, life in the real world and life um, in the virtual world. And if you're an arts organization and you're not, you haven't developed a, you know, a a virtual version of what you're doing, you, you possibly, you know, you're missing out on an audience you might not otherwise reach. I think one of the things the pandemic sort of taught us was, you know, we have never been really all that sensitive to people with disabilities. And all of a sudden, we were all disabled um, in a way that called attention to how really un on top of things we we were. So these are opportunities. I don't see these as 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 problems. These are incredible opportunities to reach new audiences. And this leads me to something that I've been talking about really for almost the entire last forty years of my career, forty plus years. And that is, you know, building your mailing list. Okay, this is something, this ah. is an- another thing that I'm like, I am rabid about this. When uh, when we would do our orientation meetings with, with artists at Creative Capital, it's one of the first questions I always had for the artist was, tell me about your mailing list. And um, we were out in California meeting with some of the artists, and one of the artists came into the meeting. He said, okay, he said, they already told me outside that I'm not supposed to tell you I don't have a mailing list, because if, if I tell you that, you're going to go off on me. And I'm like... You don't have a mailing list. I'm gonna go off on you. So um, um, you've been warned. Is, you've been warned. Yeah. So this is another place where I think artists can put themselves in control of their own, or more in control of their own future. It's something that I have been thinking about really since the, you know, really since the '90s. I have to say, since well, since really since the '80s, is how can you you know, how can you have maximum control over your own fate, over your own future? And that's really one of the ways is to really think about building your own constituency and not be, you know, I, my um, uh, my ex is a filmmaker and he just did a screening of a film about the artist Lonnie Holly, um, who you might know is an art, outsider artist from Alabama whose work is extraordinary. And they had a screening at the Smithsonian. And when, um, and I'm naming names here because it's unconscionable. So when he asked the Smithsonian, so they were on the calendar at the Smithsonian. Okay, it is the Smithsonian. But he he asked them what they were going to do to promote the film. And they said, oh, no, we don't really do that. Wow. (laughs) I was like, oh, my God. God, seriously, you don't really do that. Anyway, yeah. Well, it's like they they listed it in the calendar. Isn't that enough? No. Okay. Uh-huh. So, so now you know. I think you have to step back and say, "Oh my gosh, am I on my own?" You know, here, and the in the insulation for that particular pathology is actually to have your own. You know, to be able to build your own lists, and I think you have to be really aggressive about it. Social media is great and and that's that's kind of passive because I can just join if I 
you know, like your work, I can just sign on. And how wonderful is that? Because you didn't really have to do, you didn't have to work very hard to, to, to get me to do that. But there is a value in having your own mailing list. And to think of that as sort of a, a VIP list that you can really have a, a deeper and more intimate relationship with. And, you know, you don't know what resources people on that list might be able to provide. In addition to going to your website and and, and purchasing work, you know, they might go to, Nicole, they might come to your website and say, oh my gosh, we're just redoing our office and I love this work. And wow, you know, I'm going to talk to this artist about, mm-hmm. you know, having her do something in our space. You wouldn't have known about that person. You wouldn't have known that that person who likes your work, you know, that you ran into in, on an elevator, because believe me, I put people that I ran into on elevators on my mailing list, um, you know, is in the position to, you know, be in an office where he can actually, you know, put your work up on the walls. You just don't know. And so, so the list becomes, uh, can be a lifeline. We, when I was at Creative Capital, we brought in this guy who was a jazz um, promoter. And he said, this was, this is like now, I don't know, more than a decade, a decade ago, maybe a decade ago. And he said that the presenters, the performing arts presenters that he was working with, were already asking him about the size of his um, artist following. And given, mm-hmm, and given the choice of an artist that has, oh, I don't have a mailing list, I don't have a social media presence, and an artist who's active on social media and has an active mailing list, guess what? All other things being equal, they're going to go with the artist who is already building an audience. I mean, that was shocking then. Now it, it just seems like this is probably what is happening. He said he said th- th- these presenters were making decisions, programming decisions based on this. So Kevin Kelly, who was one of the um, founders of Wired Magazine, wrote this piece, just like, I don't know, 2008, a long time ago now, called um, A Thousand True Fans. And he believed, mm. and you can forget the thousand, but he believed mm-hmm. that if you could build a, a list, if you could amass a list of a thousand people who were really your, he called them your true fans, which means that they will schlep across the tundra, you know, if your work is anywhere yeah. near them, or they'll buy anything you're selling online or, you know, your CDs or whatever, that if you can amass a thousand true fans, that any creative person, that that will give any creative person a base. That might not be all the resources you need, but he values each of those people at about $100 a year because he said, well, they might come to a concert and they might bring two or three of their friends or they might buy a CD or they might whatever. So, you you know, if you add it up, you know, you don't know what else they might do. They might host an event at their house for you, right, to tell other people about your work. There could be lots of ways that this group of people can be valuable to you. And you can go to that group of people and ask them to help you solve problems that you're trying to solve. Let's say you need a location for something, right? We had a Creative Capital grantee who needed, this was at a retreat, he needed a used car dealership. Okay, he put this in his presentation. I would swear on a Bible. Yes, he got access to a used car dealership at the Creative Capital Retreat. Yes, mm-hmm. that happened. That actually happened. So you just, you don't know. You just never know. And so cultivating this group of people that will you know continue growing over time. These are really these can be your people. And they're going to bring their friends. And then their friends are going to be your people. And this is the way you can really build out a constituency over time. And that potentially can be a sustaining constituency. If you think about 
the mechanisms that we have like Kickstarter or Patreon, um, you know, especially Patreon where you can contribute every month to some, you know, to an individual. Also, I, I I do one of the organizations that I, where I'm on the board, I I contribute monthly through Patreon as well. Mm -hmm. So you can really amass a lot of support. I don't know if this is still up on Patreon, but a few years ago when I was researching this, the musician Amanda Palmer wrote about mm-hmm. how she is completely supported by her fans on on Patreon. And there are over 13,000 fr- fans that she has. Well, if each of those 13,000 fans just gave her a dollar a month, you know, yeah. she's going to have like 160 some thousand dollars a year. I like to break it down this granularly because it makes it more real. Now, you're not going to, you aren't going to have 13,000 fans overnight and they're not going to all give you a dollar a month or $10 a month. They're not, they're not. But if you think about it that way, you're not beholden then to any one thing or any one collector or one organization or one buyer. You have a multiplicity of resources. I really love this. To me, that again is a kind of antidote and insulation. You know, you know, you might not get the Creative Capital Grant or the Guggenheim Grant or any other grant, right? But you have this base of support and they can potentially sustain you. What's that kind of diversification that you are talking about related to finances? I mean, that's true for every other aspect of your career, your community. And those ideas you were saying about a thousand true fans reminded me of the origins of Kickstarter as a business. You know, it was founded on that idea or assumption. And that's how they've been able to build their model of support for for artists, um, along with Patreon, like you mentioned. And so... I think another myth I feel like we've encountered is this assumption that perhaps at a certain stage of career that certain things will just start to happen. And I think the realization that you really do have to be proactive and kind of take control over those aspects, whether promoting a project or continuing to build and grow your audience, um, that that doesn't that never stops over time. And I think it is important for artists to recognize that because, um, you know, it's not just something when you're starting out and you're just trying to find opportunities that you really need to be the most, you know, the greatest agent or advocate for yourself, but that at every level, that's something that you really have to continue to do and that there are resources out there, like you've pointed out for, for that. Yes, it's so true. And I, I think I think one of the things I've seen too is that sometimes people have early successes that actually blind them <laughs> to to the, the the journey that they're about to be on, right? So sometimes mm-hmm. if you're successful when you're young, you think it's always going to look like that. And then people get to like the next phase of their career and it's like, oh my God, there's somebody younger, cuter and skinnier like right behind me. So I'm not so... Mm-hmm. Are you in my head? Anymore, Have you right? been in my head this whole time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this sounds a little too relatable. Yeah, so so then then what, right? You know, so I think it's it, you're right, it's so important. I think one of the other things that I've thought a lot about too is that one thing that is is again another antidote to all of this is really thinking collectively and thinking about what you can do. I mean, like look at what you've done. You've created a resource for your colleagues and friends and and for people who don't don't know you yet. You know, how marvelous is that? And I think that that is um that staves off a lot of I think 
depression and and again where people are walking around with false information about how everybody's doing so much better than I'm doing. Right. <laughs> but but I think, you know, creating opportunities for um for each other. I think you know what it's it's something that gets the respect of people in the field, right? That you weren't waiting. You weren't sitting around waiting for somebody to show your work. You got, you know, six artists together and you rented a space and then you invited people to come and see the work and meet the artists and hear them talk about it, right? That's good. You know, when you can do those kinds of things, you know, with with people you respect and and you know, whose whose work you feel is is exciting to you. You know, those are are really I think smart things to do, you know, with and and for each other. So, and and when you see that, I think you really every I think everyone feels really heartened when they see that happening. Well, it's something every artist can do. You know, you don't need any resources or any anything to start out. It's you know, we didn't have any experience with podcasting when we decided to start beyond the studio, or it's like you're saying something that can build slowly over time. And I think for us, it has. You know, it's five or almost six years in now that oh we've been gosh. interviewing off and on. So it's been a very slow form of growth but um, I hope that you know every artist feels empowered to initiate whatever kind of project that they have in mind that they don't need to wait for that enormous grant or I mean as as really important as those huge forms of support like what creative capital offers are um, I think that artists can also get started wherever they are like you said there's um, there's really no barrier in that sense you know, one of the things at Creative Capital is that we tried to build value in at all stages of the process. So um, if you look at the application, the Creative Capital application, and I encourage people to actually look at the application, whether you're going to apply or not, because so many people over the years came up to me and said, you know, I'd be on a panel and people would come up to me and say, oh, you know, I didn't get the grant, but oh my gosh, just filling out the application, I learned so much about my project, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a good, we worked really hard on it and it has, I don't think it's changed that much over the years. I think it's a really thoughtful application and it asks about influences, it asks about how you think about audience, um, you know, it asks you to describe the project in jargon-free language. I used to say, if you use the word simulacra in your proposal, you're probably not going to get a creative capital grant. (laughs) So please don't, you know, so we asked, you know, not hard questions, but questions where you really had, really had to think how you would use the non-monetary aspects of of creative, the creative capital um, offerings. So many people, when they got to the end of the grant and their project was done, the project was successful, they would say to me, this grant was not about the money. It's Mm -hmm. about all the other things, the relationships, the skills, you know, so I think those are things that that again a lot of that you can you can do for yourself but i do encourage people to apply to everything not just creative capital apply to anything you feel look if you're way way if your work is like way outside the the lines i would say don't don't waste your time but if it's if you if you feel you're in the ballpark for any grant you should apply because and again i don't know what they're doing at creative capital now so i don't speak for the organization now but when i was there everything that came in got read by two readers so we started by reading the application we did not look at work samples in the first round this was also sort of radical at the time we, we had one reader who was sort of an, a national reader and we had a second reader who was from the region that the artist was from we did that because we thought two things one we're going to get a better 
read on the project from somebody who might be familiar with this artist's work, right? If the artist is from the region or if they're from the artist region and they don't know the artist's work, then we have introduced an artist in your region to you and maybe something will come out of that, whether this artist gets a grant from Creative Capital or not, right? So that's just, that's step one. If you make it to the next round, two more people are going to learn about your work. And at that point, they're going to actually um, look at a work sample. And then if you go on to the panel, there were probably seven people. Again, these are people from your field who are going to get to see your work and, and participate in a discussion about it. Okay, 11 people from your field who are probably the exact people you would like to have your ideas in front of have just now seen your work, whether you get a creative capital grant or not. We had, on so many occasions, somebody who just read something would, would come to us and they would say, oh my gosh, I just read this incredible, about this incredible project and is it, I would really like to contact the artist. I, I won't tell them where I heard about them. Would that be okay? I'm like, tell them exactly where you heard about them. I want people to know that there's <laughs> value in applying whether they get a grant or not, right? So we mm -hmm. had a lot of stuff that happened. In fact, pretty early on, and we didn't really have the technology capability when we were young, but when we were youngish, but then eventually we were able to create something called On, on Our Radar, where we were able to highlight projects that didn't get the grant, but had made it through a certain point in the mm -hmm. process. And we were like, here's, you know, we announced the awards, wait a respectable period of time. And then we'd say, here's some other wonderful, wonderful projects that we were not able to fund. Take a look. And people, the first person who contacted us at the first year we did it said, I just got a residency in like Norway or something. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> because of being posted on, on our radar. So, you know, I mean, this was, again, something that we were trying, we were sensitive to was the fact that we couldn't, we just weren't going to be able to support every great idea out there. So by featuring projects on, on our radar, and then also by making the professional development workshops available, we were able to actually serve a, a lot more artists than we could reach with just the, the grant. Yeah, it sounds like those connections that happen throughout the process, whether through the artist retreat or just being able to spotlight projects at different stages are equally important for spurring along those artists' careers or, or work as the, the funding, which almost, I mean, not to discount the importance of that kind of monetary support, but it it's really sounds like the funding is almost secondary to the network and all of the other resources provided which was sort of the, the founding belief in the creative capital. Just thinking about that idea of the collective and back to the idea of creating a kind of infrastructure of support for artists, I was also curious to know, because we had done a podcast episode back in the middle of 2020, so a few, maybe six months into the pandemic, about mutual aid efforts that had emerged in order to support individual artists during that time. And um, we'd interviewed a handful of efforts from a, a, a student supporting student uh, organization to, let's see, who else? Uh, a group called the Black Artist Fund um, that was uh, providing direct support to emerging Black artists. And then we had also spoken with Carolyn Ramo from Artist Relief or from Artadia as a part of Artist Relief Fund. 
Um, and I know Creative Capital, along with Artadia and United States Artists and several other arts organizations, uh, were a part of this enormous nationwide effort to bring uh, multiple grant-making organizations together to provide emergency relief to artists. And I'm wondering, because that was such an exciting effort, I think, that came together so quickly in response to a real crisis. Um, do you think that those types of collaborations could be sustaining, or are there other models that you're seeing or that you're thinking about when it comes to uh, maybe creating a broader network of infrastructure for supporting artists in the U.S.? It's such a good question. You know, I think the field is is very good at um, at dealing with crisis, but those efforts often don't continue when the, it's perceived that the crisis is over. So what could artists or small organizations do to make the case that support is actually useful in an ongoing way, not just for not just for crisis. And what could be done to make it less dependent on the foundations because they will move on. There will be other, you know, there'll be other things that they're interested in individually and collectively so that they this is not is probably not a relationship that they want to get into in perpetuity. So could a mm. grassroots network of say individual funders then be step two, you know, for sustaining something longer term. It's harder work, but could something like that maybe work? You know, maybe seeded by the initial foundations that were were there in the crisis. What if they created a fund where it was designed to be matched by other kinds of donors, right? So um, individuals, smaller family foundations all across the country. What if you, you know, built something out that way? You know, I, I like the idea of more kind of grassroots funding efforts. Um, I, I, I like mm-hmm. that a lot because, you know, again, if you lose one donor that was a, a $500 donor, that's not like losing a $100,000 donor, which would be, might be crippling. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, so I think, I think we have, I think there's a lot of work that we haven't yet done and, and we haven't done it because it is work. It's so much work, (laughs) you know, it would be so much work, but it would be great to see something like that, like a real sort of people's fund, you know, in a way. One of the things I found in my papers that I had completely forgotten about was an effort that some of us were working on in the, in the mid, mid late nineties, which was to sort of create a like an artist national artist database that would have every working artist in America on it and where you would you would you know probably pay you know minimal wow, membership ambitious. dues yeah it was so amb- well then it was crazy i mean then it really made no sense but believe it or not we raised a little bit of money to explore it i mean it it, it was not going to happen but uh, but it was such a great idea i mean we cuz because we felt like and this is during this is another culture wars kind of response was that we felt that we didn't have a mechanism for responding you know in a grassroots level like how are we going to you know yes we were all doing it individually through our own organizations but you know would it have been more effective if we had, sh- had shown ourselves to be this large collective mass of people right organizing mm-hmm. around whatever the particular issue is. I still think that's a good idea. And now we have the technology that would make it 
really easier to do, right? And we have mechanisms like you, you know, to promote it to your listeners, um, you know, so that there's a lot more, there would be a lot more opportunity to build it. And if you have volume, you know, as the as we see in technology, you know, I might pay, you know, somebody nine ninety nine a month, right? But they have like millions of people paying them nine ninety nine a month, so they don't have to charge me a hundred dollars a month, right? For for their services. So, you know, could we build something that would be sort of a mass arts movement that would just, you know, where the goal would be, let's have every artist in America, you know, who is concerned about issues around, you know, censorship, who's concerned about equity, who's concerned about, you know, again, all the things that that we say we care about and have that be a, a massive list. And it could be broken out in a lot of different ways. It could be segmented for, for depending on, you know, what issues might come up. But couldn't we make ourselves a powerful force? And then it could also be an entity that um, provides other kinds of support services. It could provide workshops on personal finance and other kinds of things as well. So that's so fascinating. It's like the potential lobbying power of the collective artist. And like what what could big artists do for America that, you know, is not being done because... America's run by like big pharma or big whatever. It's like what could what could we <laughs> big do? Like, artists. As artists, yeah, big artists. As artists and and you know, caring about artists as a whole, we know that artists create such a diverse breadth of our population and that it is a an immense group of people, but we're all so dispersed and kind of in That's our right. own little hidey holes, yeah. make, you know, just toiling away at our work, but the collective power can have really lasting impact that could help future generations of it, artists and humans alike. It, it, I, I would hope so. Yeah. Well, I would say this effort was doomed from the start because the name of the of, of this effort was the National Artists Advocacy Group, which is a good name. Unfortunately, the acronym was NAG. <laughs> <laughs> So I think sometimes it, it, it's the squeaky wheel, you know, <laughs> <laughs> didn't have much of a future, but uh, <laughs> um, no, but I think that that's, I think we need these juicy ideas um, now to sort of, uh, you know, to really think about how we could move things forward. And, and, and to me, again, you know, as I am thinking about this issue of what, what would insulate us is I think if we had and that's just one example of a kind of structure that if we had it, we could we could go on the offensive instead of always, you know, playing defense, right? I, I feel mm-hmm. like we could be much more proactive when these atta- these censorship attacks come if we had a force behind us, if we had you know, millions of artists you know, you know, represent, you know, being represented, then that's a that's a, something you can really claim. And that we and we say we're in every community in the country. So it's not just artists who are in New York and California. So, you know, I, I feel like they're, I feel hopeful, but I recognize that the things I think that need to be put in place at this moment are, they are going to take a lot of work. And, and really, I think it's going to need to be your generation that, that um, creates them. So, all right. Get ready. <laughs> Nicole, <laughs> are you prepared? Yes. And there are advocacy groups like Americans for the Arts um, that, of course, are doing this 
this type of really important work. I'm curious if, just given the origins of creative capital, if there were more federal funding for individual artists in the United States, do you think that an organization like Creative Capital's role would shift? Or I'm just wondering, because we've been talking a lot about support for for the arts and artists sort of here within the U.S., but uh, in relation, I know you had written something in your notes, Amanda, about support for the arts in the U.S. versus other uh, like European countries, for example, and just what your your thoughts are around like that type of higher level support, because it's sort of it seems like we're talking both about the grassroots initiatives and how do we kind of establish a critical mass in order to affect widespread change, but then also some of those more like top-down efforts, like how do we get more federal funding and, you know, how do we lobby these large organizations to support us as artists? Absolutely. And that was, in fact, I mean, the reason that we thought about this at National Artist Advocacy Group was we felt that we could lobby at sort of a federal level. And also you could even have state chapters and, and advocate at a state level for uh, mm-hmm. for public uh, for public support, really at, at every level. And look, we need a really robust art support mechanism at the federal level. And, you know, there's a wonderful person running the NEA right now, but, I, but you know, it's, it's so hamstrung. This is the problem. You know, it's been beaten down by so many decades of right-wing craziness that, you know, that it, it's really very limited, I think, in what mm-hmm. it, it can actually do. I would love to see, you know, I was very active there. I was on every panel, <laughs> imaginable um, when I was uh, in my younger years. And it was such an amazing experience. And in fact, I tried to uh, mirror a lot of that, uh, what, what I, my experience at Creative Capital. You know, everybody said to me, oh, you should do Creative Capital as a, as nomination, as a nomination process. And I said, no, we're going to have an open submission. I know it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like, "You're that's nuts. That's crazy." I'm like, "I know it. We're gonna fe- we're gonna be. There has to be an, a portal somewhere in the field that is open. There just has to be an open portal somewhere." And I think having been really raised by the NEA, I felt that like the NEA, we needed to we need we needed to be an open portal. That other places existed that were nomination only and that we needed to be open. So that was one of the ways that I um I tried to mirror the experiences that I had, had um, you know, in my time, you know, and working with NEA in many capacities. You know, it was really an important part of my education. Yeah, I'm I'm so curious because you've seen so much in your career and yeah, you remain so optimistic about the future, it seems. And I'm wondering, because Creative Capital, again, was this organization that was kind of pulling from from models from other sectors. And it, it really was just such a uh, like revolutionary approach to running an arts organization. And so with what you've seen and what you're seeing today, are there things that you're particularly excited about, whether it's specific organizations or just like kind of approaches or other new models. Um, Like I'm just wondering what what that might look like today or what might like the next creative capital, for example, sort of look like. You know, I'm not sure I, I know everything that's going on out in the world. I think that Springboard for the Arts up in Minneapolis oh, does a St. Paul does just a fantastic job and that Laura is really They're wonderful. Real, so wonderful and so 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 smart. I think Angie Kim out on the West Coast and in LA at the organization she oh, runs sure. she's so, so 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 thoughtful. Those are just the two things that that come to mind. I think there there are, I know there are other things out there and you know, I think the moment kind of 
you know, helps dictate what the, you know, what the needs are that, that should be addressed. And, you know, I, I like to see people, you know, dreaming up their own things and, and really trying to be responsive to, to the moment. I'm on the Andy Warhol Foundation board and they gave a grant to, is it Tiger Strikes Asteroid? Have I got that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so I didn't know them. I mean, they're right here in New York, and I I didn't know them. They're a small organization. When I read about them, I thought, oh, my God, this is so genius, because what they've done is create this really smart model where they're like, um, almost like a, I may not even have this right. This is my interpretation. This is my interpretive dance of, of Tiger Strikes Asteroid, but where they were like a hub, but they weren't actually doing everything. So it was other organizations that were actually making things happen, but they were sort of a central, almost like a clearinghouse hub. Well, what that meant was they didn't have to have a huge infrastructure, right? They didn't. They they could be lean and mean, right? And yet create and facilitate all these other things going on. That is a very interesting model, right? Because we're always we're all in this like growth, 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 and I need more staff, and I need more this, and I need we need more room, and maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. Maybe you need a different model, right? So I'm really interested in how people think about the models they're using because it's very easy to fall into a sort of more traditional trap, you know, when maybe there's an alternative that would work better for you based on what your mission is and what your resources are. So they're a relatively small organization, you know, and and it was really, and then when you read about them, you would think they had a budget like, eight times the size of the budget they actually have, given everything they're doing. So that was very inspiring. That was really inspiring. Yeah, I feel like this, that idea of being flexible has come up a lot in conversations over the past couple of years, especially whether we've been talking with people from the world of higher education or other types of kind of arts institutions. And I know you've spoken about this in the past too, um, just how arts organizations can remain nimble enough to embrace the kind of risk that you've talked about as being really necessary in order to support the most innovative projects and sort of what it looks like to avoid becoming too institutionalized and uh, just how to remain, um, remain flexible and responsive. And it seems like that's Um, maybe been happening a lot more throughout the pandemic. I don't know, just because of necessity. But I guess what you're also describing is how to maintain that sense of urgency or how to how to sustain that beyond this moment of crises. I think this is another um, thing I've thought a lot about is how do you stay alert? You know, sometimes if things are going okay, you're just not as alert, maybe as you need to be about what might be around the corner. And so I think cultivating mm-hmm. alertness is um, is something that I actually, I've talked a lot about this when I speak to artists, that that is a, a quality. And certainly for organizations, it's really a quality we all we all need to have because you don't know what's, what's happening. And also just to, I said I wanted a t-shirt that said, don't mind me, I'm just iterating. Because I think, you know, thinking less about failure and more about iteration. I think it's a health, again, a healthier, more optimistic way is that, you know, you're going to learn from the things you do that don't, that don't work at all, or that don't work the way you thought they would. But you have to always be analyzing, I think, whatever it is you're doing and asking, you know, did this work? Did it not work? Did it not work as well as it could? If we tweaked it here, 
or there, or should we really abandon it? This is not, you know, not going to happen. And so, you know, it's it's hard to, to do that, but I think it's really necessary. It's really necessary work. We were asked one time by one of our big funders to talk about a fa- some failure that we'd had, to describe the failure. And I, you know, in the application, I said, I, I can't really do that because I, I think we fail every day, but we just don't, we don't see it that way. You know, we just don't see it. We just, mm-hmm. you know, f- figure out what we did and then we move on. So we don't, we're not registering it as a failure. We're just registering it as a part of the process. Yeah, it just sounds like another uh, one of the ways that you're sort of pulling from that uh, the tech or startup world that feels like a very uh, startup mentality to, uh, approach to the idea of failure. Yeah, I think so. I guess I was wondering, yeah, I know we might be sort of getting to the end of the conversation here. And I just have to say, Ruby, I feel like we could hear you uh, talk about your your life and work all day. It's just, it's already been flying by and I wish this conversation could go on for hours. But I did want to ask you when, as you've been going through this process of um, archiving your work and um, as you're reflecting back on your career, what what are some of the highlights for you? Um, either something that stands out or maybe something that you're most proud of? You know, I have been so blessed to have had these very, very, you know, diverse experiences because I started out in the performing arts and, you know, my first job was out of graduate school, was in a community college in Western North Carolina. I'm from Western North Carolina. I swore I was never going to go back to that part of the state. And there I was, you know, for two years. And it was an unbelievably valuable experience. I was the arts for Cleveland County (laughs) when I was there. So that was sort of a beginning for me. And then I had these opportunities to run a summer theater, uh, also based at a community college in Charlotte. And so I had opportunities to to learn how to run things, again, at a pretty early age. And then I moved to New York um, and was able to work at the Manhattan Theater Club, which at that point was becoming one of the most important off-Broadway theaters, still is. Um, And that was an extraordinary experience. And then I learned about, while I was there, um, I learned about Alternate Roots, which is like the exact opposite, which is this grassroots cultural organization uh, focused on the performing arts based in the South. And I decided to move back to the South to run that organization, which I did for a handful of years. And then I consulted for a few years. And then one of the consulting gigs I got was with uh, the local media center, the film video center there in Atlanta. And they were, their director was leaving and they asked if I would consider, you know, applying for the job. And I said, well, but my background's really in theater. And they were like, well, yeah, well, we all have master's degrees in film. We need somebody who knows how to run an organization. And I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. So I got a four-year paid education in independent media. And then I was ended up applying for a job running the National Association of Filmmakers um, based in New York. And I moved back to New York. And here here I still am in early um, the early 90s. And it was at AIVF for about seven years. And then Arch Gillies, who was the president of the Warhol Foundation, basically asked me to come invent creative capital. So it was, um, 
you know, it's been an amazing journey. And they were all highlights because there were things I learned, you know, along the way that kept, they just kept adding up. And so in some ways, Creative Capital felt like an appropriate culmination of all the other things that I had done and all the things I'd learned and things I'd been interested in. So I felt very unbelievably lucky to have that um, opportunity. And I certainly didn't want to screw it up. (laughs) But I'll tell you something that's happened after Creative Capital, because, you know, I have gotten very interested in in more political stuff after Creative Capital. It's been interesting. I I call it political cultural writing and work. And I've just got I just feel that, you know, with the the new culture wars, which the Republicans understand and understand how to exploit really well, and the Democrats are basically clueless, that there's a lot to think about in terms of the fact that we're not just in a political emergency, we're kind of in a cultural emergency too. And in that sense, uh, you know, I do think about how artists could be so helpful during this time, really on every front, to help us collectively as a society think through the issues that we're facing. And they're, they're, it could be happening in a much more robust way. Again, it's happening, but it's disjoint. As, as you were saying, people kind of scattered all over the place. So so I, I, I think that this is, um, I'm really enjoying the kind of crazy, some of it's really lovely and some of it's kind of snarky, the writing of doing but it will all be up on my archive which it, if, if everything goes well is going to release on april 24th okay and, great um, yeah i will have, I, I turned 75 on april 11th and um so it will release i will release it shortly after that and it really really have almost everything on it everything i could find on it so um and we're trying to make it playful i hope it will be um enjoyable for people yeah, thank you so much for sharing everything and for talking about the span of your career thus far. And I think it's so important to hear that we can have a great impact at any age of our career and that even if our career trajectory seems potentially chaotic, each of those steps help to build the artist that we are and kind of lead into the next thing and that job experience may seem like irrelevant to your art career in the moment, but the tools that you use while you're there, the connections that you build can have such a a lasting impact. And I feel like your career proves that so much. Oh, you're so right. You know, it's really important. My parents had a clothing store in in Western North Carolina, sort of a Main Street clothing store. And I worked there from the time, I don't know, I think I was seven years old. My father didn't love it so much, but my mother was absolutely amazing. And I learned about target marketing from from my mom because when she would go to the buying shows, you know, where you're looking at the the things that are going to be available for the next season and you're, you know, buying things for the store, she came to those those meetings with her list. She had her list of customers. She knew exactly who she was buying for, exactly who. And then when mm-hmm. she would come back from these shows, she would call those people up and say, I was just at the show. We have something so exciting coming uh, here. I, I bought I bought something that I, I just for you. I know you're going to love it. Okay, who's not buying that dress 
or those pair of pants or whatever it is. No, you're buying it, right? She was a genius. She was a genius at that. And I never, you know, it wasn't until really more recently that I have processed what it was she was actually doing. And I mean, she didn't have, she didn't go to business school, right? So... She was a European Jewish immigrant from Berlin. So, but she really, yeah, she had so much business savvy. You know, it was only recently that I realized how much I had absorbed from, uh, you know, from, from what I, what I observed. Yeah. So. Wow. I'm sure just looking back at all of these different experiences, you're, you're seeing new connections emerge and, and seeing things in new ways. And so, we're, we're excited to dive into more of your archive and to read more of your recent writings and just hear about some of those new revelations that you've had. And it's been really so wonderful to hear you talk about your work today. And I think I was excited to hear about your perspective as someone who has led this really pioneering arts organization. And I'm I'm just so struck by how much advice there's been for us as independent artists in here. And I think that really speaks to your your mission and your spirit and really how dedicated you've been to uh, supporting individuals. And I feel like that's really worth calling out because we truly all do owe you a, grat- a debt of gratitude for your work, um, not just at Creative Capital, but throughout your career. And we've clearly been so inspired by it personally um, through Beyond the Studio, but I know that every artist, whether they might realize it or not, has probably benefited from your work in some way. So thank you so, so much for taking this time and just for everything that you've done for, for artists. <laughs> Thank you so much and thank you for everything you're doing. I think this is real this is so important and I appreciate the honesty and transparency um that you are bringing to these conversations. Um it it's really so needed and so they're really amazing. I mean what you're doing is um a huge huge public service because you're talking about things that are very hard to talk about publicly that most human beings don't want to talk about publicly and certainly artists don't want to talk about publicly. I think there's a lot of shame around financial issues and um, mm. everybody thinks everybody's doing better than they are. And usually it's just not true. Yeah. <laughs> it's not true. And as several people, it was fun to listen to a couple of different podcasts because as some, as people pointed out, in a way, you know, when you get more successful and then you have to get a bigger space and then you need assistance and you know your expenses go up too so your margins your profit margins kind of drop i mean it was it, mm-hmm. it was really like listening to to small business people have uh have conversations so i th- i th- just thought it was just incredibly helpful because it was people were willing to be so honest so i don't know if you know this but i do a presentation called uh the business of you time treasure throng trajectory. I don't know what happened. I just got a crazy idea that I should have an alliterative title. And so everything had to start with a T because I didn't know what else to call time. Anyway, so so it's about the, <laughs> uh, the it. things that you can control in a career. And because, you know, everybody's, well, how do I get a gallery? Or how do I do this? Or how do I do that? Well, 
I, I can't help you with that necessarily. Uh, and no one in a way can help you with that. I mean, those are things that you have to, you know, you have to work at and they, you may work at them and they still might not happen, but there are definitely things that you can control and you can control your time. You can control your financial resources, whether you have a lot or whether you have a little, you can control building your own audience and you can control how you think about the trajectory of your career. So that's what the, the lecture's about. And I love doing it because I, I did it at um, USC for, for grad students there, maybe a couple of years ago now. Um, at the end of the presentation, one of the artists said, gosh, when we started this morning, I never thought I was going to get so interested in my money. Um, and I thought, wow, my work here is done. Mm. Somebody got interested in their money. Yeah. So That's I, amazing. I just so appreciate what you're what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. It it definitely matters so yeah, much to us to have conversations talking about money because it is so hard and uncomfortable. But as artists, we desperately need to be having these conversations and to build more transparency amongst each other to see that like we're not actually doing better than we think each other are. Like we're really often in the same boat and struggling with many of the same issues. So the more yeah. we can discuss them openly, the more we can help each other out and grow together. So thank you for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I hope that you will have the energy to keep it up. So, you, you know, so you have, you have to take care of yourself. So you, you have that energy. Oh, yeah. yes. Uh, building sustainability <laughs> into this is a, a big old priority in our practice. Well, thank you for like allowing us to add this conversation to our our shared archive yes. moment now. And uh, so grateful that we have this recorded and, and can continue to reference it back. And, you know, so many of the things that we read in the articles that you wrote, it still speak to today. Thank you. You know, it's been a, a real privilege. I, I have had um, I've had the, the gift of a, really an incredible career and incredible opportunities. And I'm really so grateful to all of this. So many people taught me so many things along the way. So it's my job to pass those on. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That's all for today's episode of Beyond the Studio. You can find episode notes, images, links, and references over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to submit to our listener spotlight and sign up for our email list to find out about upcoming guests, events, special announcements, podcast giveaways, and more. If you love listening to Beyond the Studio, please leave us a rating and review and share the show with your creative community. Thanks. We're going to have to cut this and like plug it into the episode because I feel like this is such a juicy part of the conversation already. <laughs> yeah, I wanted, I mean, it was a hard, it was hard for me because I kept talking back to the episodes. I had all these <laughs> things I wanted to ask, <laughs> things I wanted to say. <laughs> so anyway. That's what we need for the next step of Beyond the Studio. We need Ruby Lerner doing commentary and responding <laughs> to the interviews. We can, Amanda can re-edit them so that... <laughs> That'd be fun. That sounds amazing. I would listen to that. <laughs>